Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. As always, I am your host, Pete Lieb. I'm glad to have you back with me tonight. Our discussion tonight is one of lust, obsession, murder, and ultimately overwhelming guilt. Guilt that eventually drove a man who was, air quotes here, above suspicion to admit to murder that he had gotten away with. This is the true story of FBI agent Mark Putnam and his informant-turned-mistress Susan Smith. It was an affair which ended tragically, and to discuss the story with me tonight is author Joe Sharkey. And if you actually are watching the YouTube channel right now, I actually have a, a copy of the uh, the book cover on the, pay- on the screen now. It actually became a major motion picture. It stars Amelia Clark, so uh, check that out as well. Uh, Joe is the author of a true crime book, Above Suspicion, which tells the story... Uh, of Mark and Susan, and was ad- adapted into the movie starring Millie Clark of Game of Thrones. If you are watching, uh, Joe Sharkey was also a columnist for the New York Times for 19 years, including 16 years as the author of On the Road, a popular week- weekly business travel column. He is the author of five books, four nonfiction, and a novel. In 2006, Joe was also one of seven survivors of a horrific mid-air collision between a business jet and a Brazilian commercial airliner at 37,000 feet over the Amazon, in which 154 people died. His accounts of that disaster and its aftermath appeared on the front page of the New York Times and a lengthy article in the Sunday Times of London Magazine. Before the New York Times, Joe was an assistant national editor at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist with the Philadelphia Inquirer. He is currently a columnist for the Business Jet Traveler magazine, a Vietnam veteran, and uh, he currently lives in Tucson, Arizona. You can find Joe online at joesharkey.com, amazon.com, and welcome, Joe, to the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. Well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't quite expecting to start the discussion this way, but as I just mentioned in the open, that story to me is just simply too amazing to pass up. And if you don't mind, if you don't mind talking about it for just a second, mm-hmm. could you talk to me just a bit about this, this plane crash that happened to you in 2006? Sure. Um... I was I was on assignment on a business jet uh, flying from Sao Paulo, Brazil, where the owners of the jet had just purchased it to uh, we were going to go to Manaus and then on to uh, Fort Lauderdale. And this was the, the maiden flight of the of the jet. And there were seven people on board, two pilots and five passengers of whom I was one. Uh, to me, it was just interesting to take the flight i was going to write about the procedure of buying a new jet not that i was ever in the market for one right uh but it was a legacy 600 uh pretty pretty nice mid-sized business jet and anyway we take off a great ceremony from the manufacturer's uh uh facility near san paulo and uh we're flying across the amazon sort of uh Catacorner from uh, uh, from San Paulo to uh, Manaus, which is on on the far su- side of the Amazon, and uh, about midway through, over the the actual deepest, darkest part of the Amazon, where the explorers got lost, suddenly there was this horrific crash, the loudest noise I've ever heard, and uh, we were uh, we didn't see it, we didn't see anything, we were severely damaged. We flew on on a really on a wing and a prayer for 30 minutes. And finally, the pilots, I don't want to say stumbled upon, but they found a, an airfield in the, in the middle of the Amazon in uh, a part of the Amazon that is really not not at all uh, populated. Mm-hmm. And we, we put down hard and heavy and um, were immediately taken into custody by this ragtime bunch of uh, soldiers. Uh, and... Uh, they had no idea who we were, so I mean, they, they had every reason to be suspicious right. of us. I mean, what are we doing? And uh, we our, we were badly damaged, but the pilots managed to keep that airplane flying uh, despite a, a, a severely damaged wing and the uh, the horizontal uh, tail was was banged up. And uh, we were we were probably in our last few minutes of flight before we uh, came upon this airfield. At any rate, we were taken into custody, and Nobody knew anything, including us. And then later that night, the uh, the commandante or whoever it was that was in charge of this sort of ragged, raggedy base 
found out there was only one telephone on, on the uh, in, on the base, found out that a 737 a Brazilian airliner, a Boeing 737 had gone down in the spot where, I mean, where we uh, felt the uh, collision. Uh-huh. And, and then we knew it, the pilots knew. And, and uh, that was a, you know, a horrific instance in particularly in the pilots lives because we had speculated what, what in the world hit us uh, we thought, well, you know, maybe we were at 37,000 feet, so it wasn't a condor. Right. Uh, I mean, the best speculation was that a military jet may have exploded at a high altitude and we hit, and we hit debris. No idea that uh, uh, another airliner had, had basically collided almost head on. Head on, I wouldn't be here. Uh, the, the fact is that when something like that happens, at that altitude, both planes were flying roughly at 500 miles an hour. So right. that's a closing speed of a thousand miles an hour. You don't see it. Yeah. You're not you're not looking at it directly, and it's over in, in, in a very short instance. At any rate, the uh, the unfortunate uh, people on the uh, on the Brazilian airliner that that went down immediately in the jungle, and uh, 154 people we later learned were uh, were killed. Once they managed to find the wreckage, it took it took a while. It took a day or two. It was an ugly incident. I mean, yeah. the Brazilians blamed the Americans, and it just became sort of an international incident. And for me, it was weird because I was suddenly I was I was reporting this international story that I wasn't wasn't prepared to uh, to be reporting. Man, I I can't even imagine that. So, as far as you can tell, was it something that came? Uh, was it above? Did it did it, did it kind of glance you from Almost above? Almost head on. It's Almost. the same exact altitude. Wow. Because with new technology, I mean, this is a part of the Amazon where the uh, where radar was not working uh, very well at all, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, but the new technology puts you uh, it puts you right on course. I mean, if you're at thirty seven thousand feet, it puts you at thirty seven thousand feet. And both airplanes, due to uh, uh, malfeasance in the air tra- traffic controllers. Uh, office, not office, in that system, where on exactly 37,000 feet, one going in one direction and the other going in the other direction. And that, so, is, that is amazing that you're, that the yeah. pilots were able to continue to fly that plane. I know. Uh, wow. Yeah. All right. To this day, pilots say to me, no, there's no way that plane flew. But yeah. It, <laughs> it did. Yeah. And, that, and you know, pilots do not do not get near enough credit for, for what they have to do to keep exactly. a plane in the air. Uh, after it's been damaged like that, it, that is absolutely it's amazing. Yeah, that's an amazing story. They were like, I was watching them. Pete. They were like, they were flying, like they were flying a, uh, you know, a, a kite or something. The two of them were working together and and uh, just keeping that that plane up in the air. And I thought, man, look at that. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's you hear that. Oh, air, modern airplanes, they fly themselves. Well, guess what? <laughs> that <No>. one didn't. <laughs> Well, and the ability to compartmentalize too, because you know those guys were afraid. You know, you know those guys were afraid. They didn't know what was happening. They knew that they were life and death right there. But yet, like you said, they still had the wherewithal to be able to work together to to you know to angle the plane down and to find a place to land. That is that's an incredible story you know, and, in itself. And when they landed, of course, that night they found out that they uh, that. 154 people had died. They were they were they were they were speechless. Yeah, shattered. And to this day, uh, you know, those guys are they're feeling this very very uh, hard. Yeah. Well, I like I said I just wanted to ask about that because I saw that sure. in your bio yeah. and I was like, oh my goodness, that's I don't want to bury the lead there either. I mean, that's a, it sounds like an incredible story. Um, so it was an international incident, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Means, so anyway, it's a long it's a while ago. Yeah. So how did you become involved with uh, the story that you wrote in, term, in terms of above suspicion? How did you become involved in that story? Uh, I've heard from uh, the, uh, the, the FBI agent, the killer's wife, had been led to believe that, that she had a movie in, in, in that story. Mm-hmm. And just by happenstance, I, I was put in touch with her. And uh, she had one of, you know, on, a, on an event like a true crime event like this, Hollywood development, people come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And she had this sort of rinky-dink, uh, half-baked uh, 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 thing she had to deal with. She didn't. But we decided that, and, and of course I'd heard from people that on on a, a movie development deal, it's always a good idea to have the book. 
uh, because Hollywood likes to yeah. likes to have the book in hand. I mean, it, it gives them credence and it gives them uh, it gives them the story. So she and I, her name was Kathy Putnam. Uh, she agreed to cooperate with me fully and uh, on a book. And I said, well, okay, the, the deal has to be, I'll write the book. I write the book. You you give me your story. Open up everything you can to me, including you know have your husband uh, uh, talk to me mm -hmm. from prison. And there, you have no editorial say in the book whatsoever. Uh, and uh, and she, uh, I thought, well, this is the deal breaker here. But she agreed to that. And she kept that agreement. She was utterly forthcoming. She opened up in a way that, that astonished me. And so that was the, that was sort of the, 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 the foundation of the book was Kathy's story. Uh, uh, you know, a Connecticut, a pretty Connecticut young wife with a with a baby who is suddenly thrust into uh, an FBI office where her husband is basically unsupervised in eastern Kentucky, in coal mine Kentucky, a really alien environment to her. And she, of course, was alien to the people in, uh, in Pikeville, uh, Kentucky. Uh, she was sort of a frosty Connecticut girl. And, you know, there were lots of misconceptions that began almost immediately. Uh, because she was shy, she didn't make friends easily, and mm -hmm. you know it was easy for her to be written off as a snotty Yankee. She definitely was not. But at any rate, I thought, okay, we're going to go ahead with this, and uh, I I got a, a book contract based on you know a proposal that I did, knowing the outline of the story and knowing it from her mm -hmm. and from whatever you know I could I could do the basic reporting. Uh, I went down to Pikeville, Kentucky, which is in coal mine, Kentucky along the, the, the Tug River, just across the, the river from, a, a bit across the river from uh, West Virginia. And uh, I stayed there for a while. And to my amazement, uh, you know, as a reporter, well, you know this, it, it's the, your biggest worry is that people are, uh, people are not going to talk to you. Right. And in Pikeville and in the, uh, the area of, Pike, of uh, Eastern Kentucky where this, this uh, woman had been killed grew up, Everybody talked to me. They were hospitable. They were suspicious. But they, if you know, if you if you approach the, those kind of folks honestly, and and, uh, and if you look a little stupid, which I have no problem doing, uh, they open up. And, yeah. and I was amazed. They uh, they they just opened up. Now it was not a story that had been polluted by the usual tr uh, true crime uh, uh, aficionados. <laughs> Uh, it was, you know, it was in the middle. It was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the FBI agent had eventually confessed. So there was no trial. It was an AP story that didn't make much of a flash. So I had it all to myself, basically. And uh, the among the people who were utterly cooperative were uh, the uh, the prosecutor, the uh, the chief detective, the FBI, which was obviously involved in the case. Right. And all the people who knew this girl as she was growing up and so it was it was a, a an interesting way to do a book actually so who was mark putnam in terms of how did he grow up why was he there why was he even in pikeville what was his role for the fbi uh, mark was a young i forget how old he was 30 a young guy whose ambition from Connecticut, a college and high school jock good looking guy whose ambition always had to be, had been to be an fbi agent he was in the state police force for a while and uh, he thought it was a, an unachievable goal to get into the FBI. Now, his wife was a very, I don't want to say aggressive, assertive. Yeah. Uh, she was a force. And Kathy pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, Mark was accepted into the FBI Academy, you know, where it looked like a boot camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, came, he was very good at books. He was an accountant. Right, uh, yeah. So, and the FBI loves uh, data. They loved it. They have love numbers. So the FBI sent him right out of the academy to Pikeville, Kentucky, one of their backwater offices, really unsupervised. There was just an, there was an agent there who was about to be transferred out. And uh, Mark was a great cop. Uh, you know, I've, I've known cops my whole uh, professional career. This guy was a cop and he knew how to do it. And uh, he was gung ho. He was automatically the best looking guy in Parkville, Kentucky, <laughs> although there will be some uh, some dispute on that. But <laughs> the women thought so in, in, in town. 
uh, he threw himself into it. He, he, uh, unlike a lot of, you know, the, the reputation of the FBI at that time, at least, was that the agents were aloof. It wasn't really all that true, but this guy, Mark, threw himself into cop work. He mm-hmm. got to know, um, he went to where uh, Susan Smith, the dead girl, uh, grew up in Freeburn, which is a town, a coal mine town, a bit to the east of, of Pike. Pikeville's the metropolis, and Freeburn is along the river, 40 miles to the east. Uh, he got to know the, the top cop in that area, a deputy sheriff named Bertie, Bertie Hatfield. This is where the Hatfield-McCoy feud yeah. had been, and there are lots of Hatfields and McCoys still there, and, and they still remember it, wow. even though it was 150 years ago. Uh, Bertie took Mark under wing. At first, he was suspicious of Mark. He thought, oh, geez, another uh, you know, hot shot from, uh, from up north. But Mark really, uh, he, he learned, he, uh, Bertie showed him, uh, taught him how to drive on those treacherous mountain roads, with all these uh, treacherous curves and uh, switchbacks. And in a while, in a, fairly quickly, Bertie became, I talked to Bertie, of course, Bertie mm-hmm. became impressed with, with Mark's guts. And, uh, uh, and Mark's charge in, in the Pikeville office was to start cracking cases because it was a considered an un, unproductive office. And of course, as I said, the FBI loves to, to rack up its numbers and I'm not faulting them for that. But, uh, sure. Uh, in Pikeville, it was easy to do because there were a lot of people there working an angle. Uh, and I'm not, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was crime ridden, but it was a place where there were a lot of bank robberies. Uh, it was before, it was, this is 1989. Uh, 88 rather uh, before the big banks moved into areas like that. Yeah. So there were every little, every little hokey town had a bank, had a local bank. And it was, I mean, you and I aren't going to rob a bank, but if we are, that would have been the place to do it. So Bertie introduced Mark to a, a local girl in, in Freeburn who Bertie had grown up with, up now had, had known. I mean, she, she grew up, he was a bit older, uh, named Susan Smith. And she was a, she was a sassy, flippant, pretty. Uh, the, the picture of her in, in, in my book uh, doesn't really do her justice. She was she was cute and she was sexy. Uh, mm-hmm. And Bertie, uh, Bertie just said, you know, you, you couldn't trust her with anything, but you understood why why men went for her. And she, you know, she went for men. So she had a, a reputation in town as a, I don't mean she was uh, her reputation was as a. Uh, sexually uh, promiscuous, but she, you know, she was, uh, she was different. And if you knew her, you remembered her. She immediately, uh, Bertie said, I'll introduce you to Susan Smith. You need an informant. Susan had enough friends, including a a known bank robber named Cat Eyes Lockhart, who uh, went in and out of her and her husband's uh, uh, social, social world, as was just the custom there. And Bertie said, she can, you know, let's see if she'll agree to help you out. Uh, she meets uh, Mark and immediately that's like, oh boy, here's, here's a, here's, here's a guy I really want to, mm-hmm. I want to spend time with. And at, after some negotiation and it's back and forth, she uh, agrees to be Mark's informant. And the first case she works on with him uh, is a is is a case to, uh, that he builds about uh, against the bank robber. Pretty, you know, not not a difficult case. It's not not really Watergate, right? But it, for her, it means she's out. Uh, and this is a place where you know a snitch can can be in trouble. She has to testify at the trial. They arrested uh, this this bank robber. Uh, actually, a very charming bank robber. A, a guy who. Uh, not the world's greatest bank robber, but he's, he was a busy bank robber. Yeah. He robbed a lot of banks. <laughs> in this one, they had a, one of those die packs that blow up when you, when you run away uh-huh. with the money. You have one of those that blow up. And <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, they, 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 they do arrest him, and, and Susan uh, testifies at the trial. And that, the trial, of course, is in Pikeville. And that outs her as an FBI informant because the, the testimony is public. How long had she been an informant prior to being outed? I mean, how, how long was uh, their relationship prior to that event? Seven or eight months is what I'm. Okay. I'm, it's a it's a guess, but it was about that because they they got together pretty quickly and uh, and Mark 
knew enough to at first be wary. Uh, Mark was married with a, with a child and another child on the way uh, soon enough. And, uh, you know, he was he was not like looking to score with, with this girl. But, the F, you know, subsequently, uh, the FBI, the, he, this office was not well supervised at all. Mm-hmm. The supervision was uh, was two and a half out, uh, uh, hours away across the mountains in uh, in uh, another part of Kentucky. Why have I forgotten the name? The name? Uh, and the supervisors were, you know, they were just like this, this boy in, in Pikeville, he's, he's just racking up the numbers. He's a star. Yeah. And, uh, he, he was like, you know, he was definitely the star in that, in that part of the FBI, uh, but unsupervised. And so I, I eventually got to know the pretty well, the agent who, who would ultimately be the, the one who went to investigate this whole mess mm-hmm. on behalf of the FBI. And he said, his name is Jim Huggins, a swell guy. And he, he said, he told me, if I had been there, I would have grabbed him by the lapels and said, look, hotshot, don't get involved with a female informant. It's just, it's a given. And, you know, he would have said, but I'm cracking these cases. She's helping me. But they were right. paying her, of course. So it was this difficult situation all around. And H- Jim Huggins, the FBI supervisor, was deeply distressed at the fact that he had not been able to supervise Mark back in those days, back in the early days. So were they, they were worried about strictly the fact that it was a female informant? Is, was yeah. that the issue? Yeah, the issue is, you know, I think it's fairly common. You, I mean, with a female informant, you got to be careful. You can't, you know, because when you're meeting with informants, usually it's in secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Pikeville, everybody knew everybody else's business in a town like that. So uh, Mark and Susan would meet uh, in a uh, up on a mountain uh, overpass where nobody could nobody would run into them, and it was the kind of situation where and she was on the make. She was definitely on the make. She she decided, uh, uh, and I'm not I'm not really I'm not denigrating her in the least because I was very careful to make sure that uh, that the Susan Smith that I eventually got to know she was dead of course mm-hmm. uh, came across in the book as a, as a full fledged a human being with with her own you know faults but her own goals and desires and anyway she wanted out of pikeville uh she wanted to go uh, her husband was was abusive and uh she wanted to get out but she had no skills to get out she uh, she she didn't know how to do it she yeah she was running cheap drug deals and you know she was involved in small crimes but she had not a clue about how to do it and mark was her white knight uh, he was he was the uh, she saw him as as her ticket out of town. Well, she also became friends with Mark's wife as well. Right. I mean, Susan and Kathy also had a, a relationship. Yeah, I said that interesting because I said that uh, Kathy was assertive. Kathy was really pushy. Uh, I mean, I loved Kathy, but she was uh, you could not uh, if she set her uh, set her goal. Uh, she said something as a goal. She she almost always did it. And her goal was to, uh, she hated Pikeville, hated it. And her goal was to get out of town. Her, uh, Kathy's goal as well was to get out of town. Uh, there was no, uh, there was no receptionist. There was no secretary at the FBI office. And Kathy, mm-hmm. being pushy, uh, took it upon herself to to involve herself in Mark's work. And she was a great help. I mean, it wasn't like she was uh, a nuisance, uh, but in that she got to know Susan Smith. Now, Kathy always thought that uh, she never thought that that Mark was sexually involved with Susan. And Mark always told me, and I, I actually believe him, that the sexual involvement with Susan was much, it was pretty late in the game. But at any rate, Kathy got to know Susan and Kathy is a helper. Uh, so uh, she got to know her in long, I think, alcohol driven phone calls at night when Susan would pour her heart out and Kathy would say, "You can, you can, you can straighten up. You can, you can do this. You can get get yourself clean. You'll be able to get out of town." Uh, Kathy acted sort of as a mentor to, mm-hmm. to Susan. And in in Freeburn, where Susan lived, she was back and forth from Freeburn to, uh, to uh, Pikeville. Uh, Susan started to act a little bit like Kathy. She she took Kathy as a role model. Uh, she began to speak differently. She had this, this, you know, this hillbilly twang, but she, she started to affect Kathy's sort of Connecticut accent and 
and she had the people, local people said she was putting on airs, but she was really just a, uh, just reflecting the influence of Kathy on her. So they were they were pals. So that's that's really interesting to me, yeah. though, Joe, is that because again, it seems to me like Kathy's empath tendencies, you know, her helper tendencies mixed with maybe a little bit of Susan's ability to manipulate and Susan had had eyes for the for Mark and so she reimagined herself into the persona that she felt would yep. suit a relationship with Mark which is what she she feels that Kathy is that is that persona so I'm going to be that person as well and see if I can get there do you mean do you think that that has any any weight to it at all or am I just fishing in the dark there? no you got it that's yep. that's exactly how I saw it uh it's about you know it's exactly how it, it was eventually seen when the, yeah. when the truth of this came out Kathy never thought Kathy was utterly confident in her marriage uh, she was deeply in love with Mark deeply uh -huh. in love with him uh, she never thought that uh, I mean Susan told Kathy openly you know I I, I want this guy you know and, and Kathy just sort of shrugged her off as a you know being silly susan would say that she wants mark to kathy she would say that you know i love mark she would you know she would make it clear that she had her eye on mark and kathy just <laughs> rubbed it off kathy was confident oh. <laughs> it's a you know it's a dystopian environment oh my goodness a little weird <laughs> uh, so she was she was making her her intentions even known to kathy and kathy, kathy just yeah, uh, kathy blind just eye i'm totally confident that so was she telling go with her so, oh my goodness! So was she telling people around town that that she had these ideals as Eventually well? Eventually, she was. Yeah, uh, uh, Susan talked a lot. She was, but she was known for telling tales. Everybody who knew her, who grew up with her and knew her when she was uh, young, knew that she was a fabulous. She told tales. She uh, exaggerated things. She was. She wasn't. You wouldn't call her a liar, although she was. She was just a. a a, tale, a teller of tales, uh -huh. and they, she told tales about about Mark, uh, how she was going to uh, marry Mark. And people were like, "Oh, that's that's uh, Susan again." So she's a married woman with children. She's going Susan, around, yeah. yeah, Susan. I'm sorry, yeah, Susan. Yeah. She's yeah. going around telling people around town that she's going to marry Mark. Mm -hmm. Does her it's an open it's an open secret it's not even a secret does her husband know that she's been saying this around town he 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 certainly begins to suspect you know I talked to him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was he was of course the first suspect but I, I I talked to him when I researched the book and uh, his his most important thing was that I that he had to tell me that he was better looking than Mark and he was a oh. good looking guy you know his name was Kenneth. And, uh -huh. But he was he was a you know he was troubled and he you know they had a an abusive relationship and uh, yeah if all you care about is that you're better looking than the guy who your what <laughs> who your wife is going around town saying she's going to marry that all I care about deal. is I'm better looking yeah he's got <laughs> mental issues <laughs> oh well okay well this, I guess you have that you got that Ken mm -hmm. Ken if you're out there I'd give but, him that <laughs> you know, I'll give you that one so so uh, okay so they they crack I, the cat eyes robbery. She goes and she outs herself as an informant. Now she's persona non grata in the city. What were the circumstances around uh, eventually what happened to her? How, how did that come about? Well, the uh, the informant relationship uh, continued. Uh, uh -huh. The uh, Cat Eyes' girlfriend beat Susan up after the trial. Oh, boy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the relationship continued. Uh, and Susan saw herself more and more as like a junior G girl, uh, mm -hmm. which Mark did not. Mark saw her as uh, very cynically as somebody who was on the payroll, who was helping him in his career. He's very ambitious, Mark. So there were, um, she wasn't really involved in that many direct uh, busts of crimes, but Mark was involved in lots of uh, things like uh, uh, chop shops where, uh, uh, People uh, where local guys steal trucks off of a highway and uh, take them to the mountains and chop them up for parts, mm -hmm. that, that sort of thing. Um, there are a lot of, you know, petty, not, not petty crimes, but not, you know, not, not huge crimes. Um, Kathy, interesting to me, involved herself in some of those cases because it was Kathy's belief, and she was actually uh, accurate about this, that when an FBI agent's family 
or the agent himself or his family or her family is uh, directly threatened, that agent is transferred out of town. Kathy was working. That was the angle Kathy okay. was working. So she got involved in stuff that you wouldn't want your your spouse to be involved in. <laughs> so that she could get her. So that she could get the family out of Pikeville, Kentucky. So there'd be an overt threat, yeah. and she could get the family out of Pikeville, Kentucky, and that worked eventually. So did they move away before the murder? Yeah. They, so they, they were gone before away. the murder. Uh, his his uh, reward. He was he was seen as the you know as the. Uh, uh, you know, the boy wonder of the uh, the FBI. Mm-hmm. And he was transferred to a, a, a really good job in uh, the FBI office in Miami. And uh, he and and uh, and uh, and Kathy um, moved there. Uh, but before in back in Pikeville, just before that, the, another agent had moved into that office. He was a 300 pound ne'er do well who bounced around from office to office. And I'm sorry, I have a dog in the back. Mm-hmm. Ended up uh, ended up in Pikeville. He, this agent named Ron Poole, had his eye on, on Susan. It's become sort of a, a soap opera. And he wanted, he only wanted to get in Susan's pants. So uh-huh. he saw Mark as his rival, and he's, he became the the Iago in this story and engineered things that uh, Su- Susan had told Ron Poole that she was pregnant with Mark and that Mark had gone out of town and this was awful. And, and uh, Ron Poole, who was now dead, worked it up so that Susan had a pregnancy report from the local clinic that said that she was pregnant. And there's some dispute about whether that was accurate. But at any rate, Mark had to come back from my, I know this is a complicated story. Mark had to come back from Miami to testify in one of the, uh, the chop shop cases that he had broken. And when he comes back to Pikeville, having been away for a month, mm-hmm. Susan accosts him. And this is where it, it gets really ugly. Susan, in a in a fury, uh, threatens him and says that unless you marry me, I'm going to uh, ruin your career. Um, very quickly, this, get, this gets even uglier. Yeah. Mark, Mark says, we got to talk. And... Uh, Long story short, uh, they drive to their usual place on a mountain siding, um, uh, actually an abandoned uh, pit mine. And uh, there's a fight in the car. Susan's threatening uh, him. She she was a fighter. I mean, she got into, into fist fights. And she, this is Mark's account now, of course. Uh, she uh, is hitting him, slapping him around and kicking in the car. He then, according to his account, to shut her up, puts his hands around her neck and to his surprise, his account now strangles her and she's dead. Now that account has not been uh, called into, into, of course, the only people who were there are Susan right. and Mark, but that account, it, I, you know, I think it's absolutely true. Mark then, in a in a, uh, in a horror, uh, strips the clothes off her body, uh, figuring he can get rid of the clothes puts here's where it's really weird puts the body in the trunk of his car and uh he mark had the next morning mark had to be in uh, lexington kentucky to talk to uh fbi supervisors on a case that he'd been working and he puts susan in, susan in the trunk trunk of his car drives back to pikeville spends a uh, restless obviously a restless night the next morning drives all the way to Lexington, which is two and a half hours away, with a potty in his trunk. Now, here's where it gets so weird. I mean, this is like an FBI agent. Everybody thought it's like he's the Boy Scout. He's got a body in his trunk, and he spends a day talking to FBI supervisors. And he tells Mark told me like he I, I knew they were going to see that I, that something was tra- mm-hmm. really desperately wrong. And he and they said later that uh, I heard later that they they said well they thought maybe he was hungover. So he, he goes he, at the end of that day in Lexington, he drives back to Pikeville in an absolute, absolute uh, frenzy and uh, takes the body up to a, a, another siding on a mountain at a pit mine that's been abandoned, dumps the body in a ravine and uh, figuring this is his account now, uh-huh. figuring that the body will be found pretty soon 
he goes back to his hotel. He finishes whatever business he had in Pikeville, and he flies back to uh, Miami. The body is not found. It, it isn't. It, it's somewhat isolated, but it's a ravine where there's lots of brush, and it so happened that shortly after he dumped the body, the owners of the pit mine bulldozed that por that portion of the uh, of the uh, the strip mine and pushed it. There was a lot of debris pushed down there, so the body was not at all evident. Yeah, uh, it goes back to Miami figuring, well, you know, very soon they're going to come and arrest me. But he doesn't say anything to anybody about what happened. And back in Pikeville, Susan had a reputation of somebody who would occasionally leave, leave town for a period of time. She always made sure that her kids, I mean, in Freeburn, her kids had, it's the kind of place where, you know, people look after your yeah, kids. She, right. she had relatives. The immediate assumption is she's off on some some sort of a antic, maybe a drug deal or something, because she had done that previously. And time passes, maybe a month or so, and, and uh, Susan's uh, sister, whose name is Shelby, Susan and Shelby were sort of estranged. Shelby later tried to uh, insinuate herself into this story as somebody who knew a lot more than she did know. What What Shelby did know was that her sister was missing right. and it seemed fishy. So Shelby makes a missing persons report. Now, nobody is extremely motivated to get uh, to, to think of a, here as a crime. So her husband never files a report. Her husband never reports her missing. No. She is no. still married with children. It's yeah. her sister a month later who did. Well, that leads insight into what the relationship was like with her husband, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Well, he is hauled in for... Um, uh, when the, when they eventually the cops figure well there may be a they have no body so they don't know there's a, uh, a crime but they figure well we gotta you know we gotta figure out what happened here so they haul Kevin in uh, you know him being yeah a pretty good suspect for sure uh, something happened you know your wife is missing what happened here but he's so uh, he shows up so uh, whacked out on drugs that the lie detector test is no good <laughs> so. But eventually they, they, they say, this guy's just too goofy. And they they, they kind of rule him out as uh, as knowing anything about her disappearance. That is absolutely the first person I would go to. If you're the husband yeah. and your wife's been gone for a month and you haven't yeah. reported it, you're my suspect right off the bat. Yeah. <laughs> you're the they guy. don't have a crime. Yeah. They don't have a crime. Right. That she's just missing. Um, so, so they let him go. Where did they yeah. go from there? For what, the time being, yeah. How, how long was it from there until Mark it became got, back into it? Mark is in, in Miami, and he's he's distinguishing himself as a young uh, gung-ho FBI agent there. They love him in the office. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a big future. But he's constantly, he's, he's being uh, driven sort of crazy with guilt. Uh, his, uh, his story, his wife's story eventually, uh, and expects almost day by day that uh, they're going to come and get him. And it doesn't happen. Uh, he, almost a year goes by before this thing crashes to an end. Meanwhile, back in Pikeville, uh, the cops, you know, there's a, a, a local uh, uh, constabulary consisting of one detective and, a, you know, a couple of deputies. Uh, they're... They're like something. Something doesn't smell right here because they, right. they, they, Bernie Hatfield, for example, knows Susan, uh, knows Mark as well. He never thought Mark was the, would would have had anything to do with it, but something something not right here. So the cops go as as they, as you would expect them to go, uh, interviewing anybody who might have some knowledge of, of Susan's whereabouts, and it so happens that a lot of the people they talk to have stories. <laughs> including some people that have crazy stories like, oh, yeah, she called me last week. And so it becomes this goofy uh, farce of not, not a farce. I mean, they really ran these things down, but nobody knows anything. Right. And the leads they do have are, are nuts. They, they, tur they turn out to be screwy leads. So that that just simmers for a while. But the sister keeps at it. And the cops are now like, we got to get the FBI we, this Mark Putnam was known to have, you know, this this informant uh, agent relationship uh -huh. with her. We got to figure out what what this guy knows. The FBI is not inclined, not inclined at all to uh, 
make the uh, agent available to the FBI, and I, I kind of understand understand this. They were like, there's no way that Mark Putnam had anything to do with this. A couple of months go by still, and finally, uh, it hits the fan. The FBI in uh, Lexington, which is like a real FBI office, yeah. And my friend Jim Huggins is the guy who uh, was sent down. I think there were ten agents that were sent into town, uh, and they swarm everything. They basically redo all the cops' work, and they come up with the same missing leads. But uh, Jim told me this is Jim's account. Um, they're the agents are all they're frustrated. They're all in a uh, a hotel, a motel. Uh, sitting around, and Huggins, who's the supervisor, says to them, "All right, who are who are our suspects? Let's assume that there's a crime here." And most of the agents said the husband. Uh, you know, he was you know he was candidate number one. Right. Uh, a couple of other people, and then one agent said Mark Putnam, and Huggins said, "You know, dang, we you know that that sort of rang a bell with Huggins, and that's when things moved really quickly." But it was more because at that point they did contact him in Miami, and and once they made that con- connection, then it was just the floodgates open from there. Well, you contact them in Miami, and Miami, of course, says there's no way we're not, you know, this is crazy. Uh, but eventually they kept, they keep pressing, and the agent in charge in Miami says, "Okay, we're going to have to uh, talk to Mark." Uh-huh. And, uh, and the upshot there is that Mark is going to take. A lie detector test to uh, to answer answer questions about what he might know about this girl's disappearance. Mark then goes home. He, Mark's in, informed that he has to take an, a lie detector test. Mark figures, well, this is it, uh, and Mark is ready to spill his guts. And he goes home, and he tells his wife Kathy, and she uh, she goes nuts. She, you can't do this. Uh, you had nothing to do with this. Um, we have to get a, a, a lawyer. So they do, in fact, hire a lawyer. But at any rate, Mark takes the lie detector test. And, of course, he, he fails. Right. Uh, and it's like, okay, we now we now have a real problem. Jim Huggins is now on the scene. And uh, uh, Mark is ready to confess. But he meets Kathy again. Uh, the lie detector test was held in Washington. And he had to fly back to uh, Miami. Uh, and he meets his wife there, and they're in a Holiday Inn dining room, and she's 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 had a couple of uh, white Russians. Uh, he's had, a, I think, a gin and tonic, and she's frantic because she thinks he's 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 stupid, and she says to uh, he says, "Look, this is really big trouble," and she says to him, "Were you sleeping with her?" And she never never thought this before, and he says, "Yes," mm-hmm. and she says. And she sort of, the way she explains this, she was almost being snotty. She said, did you kill her? And he said, yes. And at that point, she leaps up and, 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 and clobbers him. And he goes on the floor. But that, that's when that whole, uh, her relationship, his, everything just fell apart at that point. But all, all I see there, all, the only thing that keeps flashing in my mind there is this woman told you, Kathy, she told you. <laughs> that she was after your man. She told you that she was going to marry your man, that she was in love with your man. You had the opportunity right then and there to, to put the kibosh on that, to take that seriously. And not one Susan ends up not dead potentially and Mark and they move away and Mark lives his life and he doesn't go to prison. That whole thing to me, it's sticking in my throat right now because I didn't realize that that she was telling Kathy. Uh, she was telling her, "I'm gonna, I want to yeah. marry your man. I love your man. I'm in love with him." And Kathy's yeah. like, "Ah, whatever. You're you're kidding." Exactly, yeah. uh, so Mark is, he admits to it. What yeah. what role did um, you know? I see that he had he basically had twelve years, ten years is what he I guess he ended up serving. That seems incredibly light for a man who kills someone. How did yeah. they work that kind of sentence? Uh, there was a negotiation because remember, there's now a lawyer involved, mm-hmm. and he's a pretty good lawyer. Uh, Kathy, uh, Mark wants to just uh, uh, admit everything and, and and go to the chair, basically. But yeah. you know, it's Kentucky, and there's no there's no that kind of punishment doesn't exist. She keeps on him, and she. Uh, I talked to Kathy. Gosh, I I must have talked to her for 50 hours altogether. I have enormous uh, 
transcripts uh, of conversations with Kathy. She uh, kept she kept at it. Uh, uh, you don't uh, you don't have to. Uh, she she looked into this, and you don't have to take first degree homicide and uh, talk to the uh, the lawyer then is involved in. It. Let's talk to the prosecutor in Pikeville. Now the prosecutor, he's the uh, the county attorney, is a an old Kentucky guy named uh, John Paul Runyon. Uh, silver-haired, uh, the kind of guy that uh, he's almost out of central casting. Mm -hmm. uh, he tells me, all right, now, you know, I get this call. Uh, we now know Mark Putnam killed this girl, but we don't know any, we, we don't have a body. And so my, this is John Paul Runyon's uh, account. My problem is I got to talk to this lawyer and I, first of all, I got to get this guy to tell us where the body is and confess. He hasn't done that yet to us. Uh, I have no crime. So there's a negotiation that uh, he took me through pretty much the entire, I think about a week of negotiating. Uh, and they finally came to an agreement uh, with uh, John Paul Runyon that Mark would confess and he would leave before, and, and before anything uh, happened, he would, lead he would on the phone he would lead uh, investigators to the body so that was eventually accepted the deal then was second degree homicide with a um, in kentucky if you want to kill somebody do it in kentucky because the sentences are not not all that great i mean he okay uh, he kills someone drives around with the body in a car for a day strips her naked dumps her in a ravine an attempt to hide what he has done yeah. um you know, that's where kind of we've talked about it, the crime of passion versus him him being the Boy Scout. That's when they kind of diverge. It seems he, yeah, it if sure he was did. really a Boy Scout and he had killed her in a crime of passion, he would have turned himself in directly and said, I, I yeah. did this right away. But he did a lot of other steps after that and then yeah. didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He can say all day long now that, yeah. boy, I was guilty inside. But I didn't mention it until they contacted me a year over, basically a year later. Yeah, that's his story. Yeah. What was the response from Susan's family around the length of the sentence and the sentencing for Mark when he... Um, oh, they they hit the hit the ceiling. Now, Susan's right? family basically was her... Her father was a, a very ill uh, ex-coal miner, and uh, her her mother was, uh, you know, not, not, a pub, not, not somebody who was any good at publicity. His sister was, was just a hellion about this. And, and of course, you know, uh, that makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, there was an, an awful lot. John Paul Runyon had to live with an awful lot of uh, condemnation in Pikeville for basically allowing this Yankee boy to get off lightly. Now, the, the sentence was 11 years. Uh, Mark did come back to Pikeville and, and confess a very quick uh, court session. Boom, mm -hmm. boom, boom. He was in and out and off he went to uh, prison, federal prison. The deal was. 11 years, 12 years, I forget, I forget which was 11 or 12 years uh, in a federal prison because the, this was negotiated because a uh, an FBI agent in a state prison in Kentucky yeah, was, yeah. was in peril. Uh, so off Mark goes to uh, prison in Rochester, uh, Minnesota. And now Kathy stayed with him, right? I mean, Kathy stood she by did, her man. Yeah. She stayed with him till the, till the day she died. What was her motivation for staying with him that's uh i mean you're asking the kinds of questions that i asked of her <laughs> yeah. in long long yeah. sessions she loved him uh she was a i mean she'd had a i don't want to say a rough childhood but she was sort of a wild teenager a good family good parents mm -hmm. uh, she was always trying to prove herself and mark to her was the most the, the most important person she'd ever met in her life so she stayed with him i you know i i i took her over this again and again and again and her story never ever wavered uh she was she wouldn't even have been i was stupid she was like i love the guy wow uh, well, same questions that you're asking and i talked to him in prison uh you know for a couple of days and his story never wa wavered uh either his story about um susan smith and his relationship with her or the account of uh, how he spent that year in uh, in Miami never wavered. I mean, I kept at him, you know. Yeah. 
how did you how did you kill her? I mean, I just kept at it and at it. it never it never changed. No, I did ask around, and it's this is awful to say, but it's surprisingly easy to strangle somebody and, and kill them. Well, yeah, especially, especially for a man and a and a smaller woman. Big, yeah, he had big hands. Yeah, yeah. I, but, when I shook his hand, and I noticed he had big hands. Anyway, that's you know his story, and there there's uh, there's been no other other story. He uh, I think he was honest with me. Uh, my problem is is one of the things one of the things you're obviously uh, getting at is I had to I wrote this book. Now, I, of course, I never met Susan, and I'm like. I got to be careful here because uh, first of all, I know a lot about Susan and she's a victim, mm -hmm. you know, she, yeah. she was murdered, you know, and while I'm kind of uh, receptive to Mark's story and, and particularly to Car uh, Kathy's, I was very, very uh, fond of Kathy. I have to write a, uh, you know, I have to write a book in which Susan Smith comes, comes forth as a, as a full blown person, yeah. you know, with, uh, you know, with dignity and, um, you know, and I, I did the best I can to, to, uh, to, to, to reconstruct Susan. But interestingly enough, when the movie was made, uh, three or three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, Amelia Clark, the British actress who'd been in, uh, Game of Thrones played Susan in the movie. And, uh, and I was on location as, as a, uh, a consultant. And I'm watching Amelia, who is a Brit, you know, and, but Amelia has, this, has mastered this hillbilly accent. And, I, and I'm watching her and I said to her, Amelia, you, you brought Susan Smith to life. And she, she then said in her hillbilly accent, thank you very much. And then she quickly switched to the British accent. Yeah. But uh, she did. I mean, if you see the movie, the movie's not been released yet. And that's a long story. But uh, she nails it. And I thought, well, OK. Amelia did that. I mean, she, but she took all of my transcripts uh, with with Kathy, and she, uh, Amelia, she was, it, she was just diligent about digging into into Susan Smith as much as she could, and I just admired her enormously. And after that, after the shoot of that movie, and it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Well, in, in reading your, I read, I went online on your website and was reading your updated epilogue, and and. It, you really felt like Mark is a sympathetic character yeah. in the story. I mean, his in-laws love him. His wife stayed with him after the fact. You know, they say it was a crime of passion. He did only spend 10 years in prison. I mean, he's he's been out for yeah. 20 years now, kind of living his life uh, yeah. after that. I mean, do you feel him ultimately to to be a sympathetic character as well in there? You know, obviously, Susan is the victim, but yeah. Mark also, again, the circumstances he was placed in with a brand new guy out of the out of the academy— put on his own, very little direction, very little uh, mentorship, little supervision. Uh, that was kind of a recipe for disaster, yeah? The uh, challenge is, I mean, for a reporter is to come up with on a fact-based story, and everything had to be true, mm -hmm. uh, is to come up with the best possible uh, account of the truth. Uh, you know, it's in the book. I, if uh, one of the criticism I some I, I sometimes hear of the book, is that Mark is a sympathetic character, but I, in every way, uh, the book is the is also the account of this horrific crime. Yeah, and his cover up of that crime. So uh, I just have to basically live with the reporting. I, I, you know, nothing has ever been uh, disputed about it. So there, it is what it is. It's it's a tragedy almost of, 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 of classic proportions. I mean, you had these two women orbiting around this guy, this totally ambitious young FBI agent, the, 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 uh, the malicious FBI agent, the 300 pound uh, bad guy FBI agent trying his best to, uh, to uh, uh, mess with uh, Mark and, and mm -hmm. get, get control of Susan. It's a, it's a horrible uh, tragedy. Well, I really appreciate you being with me tonight. I have one last question. We're coming up on yeah. an hour here. Uh, so yeah. my last question then is, with all of that that went on and the FBI had to get involved and had to do their own investigation and ultimately found one of their own was guilty for this, what improvements have been made, if any, within the FBI uh, protocols and procedures with regards to resources or in terms of mentorship, in terms of an older, more experienced agent have they done anything in to improve their protocols to prevent this in the future? They, uh, they have. Uh, they, they, I mean, this is the FBI's account, but uh, 
there have been uh, strict uh, procedures put into place about dealing with female informants. Yeah. Uh, and, and also about there were heads rolled on this one because there really was no supervision in the Pikeville office and a, and a couple of the agents who were at various regional offices who should have been cognizant, who should have had some situational awareness, were uh, lost their careers. And of course, uh, uh, the evil uh, Ron Poole, the mm-hmm. 300 pound Iago, uh, died, but uh, he was, uh, he was, his career was over. So there were, I mean, this is, you know, Jim Hawkins was horrified, the FBI agent from Lexington was horrified at this because he's one of those guys the fbi was his life yeah and he you know he was an old timer in the fbi he was in his i guess in his late 50s and you know he truly was an fbi agent who believed in the fbi he was he was adamant about getting improvements put into place so i i think they did i know particularly that they they uh have new uh, strict protocols about uh paying informants which they do okay and and dealing with with uh, female informants well, uh, I still have questions, Joe. Like you said, some things just rattle in my brain, and I'm thinking uh, there are so many, as in life, right? There are You're on this road of life, and there are turns on that road. And if you had made that turn, your life is completely different. And I think that there were turns in this story that if they had been taken, uh, none of this would have happened, and we wouldn't be talking right now. But that's right, yeah. That, that's amazing. It would have made a great novel if I could have made things up. You know what I mean? Well, there's like a Dostoevsky uh, novel in that. Yeah. Like, I mean, you can't make it up, you know? Um, so again, thank you very much for, for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it's it. It's been a pleasure. I, I mean, is there anything else that you would, I mean, I know we're, we're in the middle of a outbreak. We, we don't get to go out a whole lot. Is there anything else that you're currently working on that you'd like to take a moment to promote while we're still on the line or you have anything else going on? I'm, I, I, I finally decided that journalism is very difficult because yeah. you have to, <laughs> You have to get the facts. Yeah. <laughs> and facts I did write a novel. <laughs> I did write a novel uh, 25 years ago. And I'm writing another novel because the novel, you can make it up. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm writing a novel about uh, Philadelphia, a murder mystery about Philadelphia, tel- local television in Philadelphia in the 1970s, which I, you know, I, I, I was cognizant of. All right. Well, so we'll look. We'll oh, look for. We'll look for Joe Sharkey's brand new novel coming out. Well, Action News. Is Action. Called. Oh, there you go. Action <laughs> News. Um, do you have an idea when when you should be ready to go? Twenty one, twenty two. What's the next year coming up? Twenty one. Twenty one. Late twenty one. Okay. <laughs> so once again, everybody, the the book that we were talking about tonight is titled Above Suspicion. Uh, as Joe said, right now the movie has not been released. Hopefully, it is someday. And it's been released in, in, in Europe. It's been released in Australia, but just not in the U.S. Okay, um, but yeah, it does have Amelia Clark and I think Jack Houston, right? Jack Houston plays Jack Houston, uh, Johnny uh, Knoxville. There's an all-star cast there. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know Jack Houston, if you ever watched Boardwalk Empire on HBO, he was the guy with the face mask. It was a great character. He played a great character on that show. <laughs> But that's that's beside the point. So uh, once again, Joe, I appreciate it. And sure. uh, uh, once again, you can find his book on uh, joesharkey.com and on amazon.com. You can find all of Joe's works. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I hope uh, you have a good evening. Good thank questions, you. Pete. Thanks a, thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay. Right. So once again, Joe Sharkey, we're talking above suspicion. Uh, Mark Putnam, Kathy Putnam, Susan Smith. Man... I hate stories like that. I'll be honest with you. I hate stories like that because you don't want to say that Susan Smith got what she was asking for ultimately. But, and I don't think she, I don't think that she deserved that in any way. But man, there were so many turns there in that discussion where Kathy could have put the kibosh on everything that was happening there if she had been more cognizant and saw red flags and, and, threw those out and even even brought it up to her husband prior to the movement to Miami. Never, just never even, the woman's telling you. If somebody, if a man comes in and he's telling me to my face that he's in love with my wife and he's going to marry my wife, we're going to have a conversation. Uh, the man and I are going to have a conversation, more than likely, um, with fists. And then my wife and I are going to have a conversation. That's the, that's, that's the most important thing. You have this conversation and you say, you know, I'm hearing these kind of things. What's going on? Is there truth to this? I think if we had started right there and if Kathy had gotten with Mark and said, Mark, 
this is what I'm hearing from her. It's coming from her mouth. What is your relationship like with her? That could have been t- super different. But then again, you also have to think maybe Kathy didn't want to know. Maybe she didn't want to know the truth. Maybe it was easier for her to hide from the truth and, and just kind of keep her happy marriage going. Because even though even though while you may think that somebody has a an affair going, and then that's maybe a, also another reason why she decided she really needed to get out of that area and moved into Miami, get her husband away from there. Because you don't think, while you may think, okay, she's, he's having an affair, you don't think that he killed her. I mean, I can completely understand that, okay, you had an affair, but you didn't kill her. Well, yeah, I did. Uh, just a terrible story. And, and it does, if you read through that information and read through the epilogue on Joe Sharkey's website, you will see, and by all accounts, Mark Putnam is a sympathetic character. In-laws still love him. In-laws kept the kids. His wife, Kathy, ended up dying from a heart attack at age 38 in 1998, I believe it was. So the kids stayed with the mother or the the grandparents for two years until Mark was released from jail in 2000. And then the kids went back with Mark and he's lived his life from that point on. By all accounts, model uh, model inmate, got out got out of jail early because of good behavior. So many places, so many turns on that road could have saved a life, could have saved two lives, could have saved three. Who knows if Kathy what her life would have been like had Mark been in her life for a decade, had there not been that extra stress on her that led to her drinking, that ultimately led to she had some, um, I believe, some organ problems and ultimately a heart attack at 38 years old. So uh, a lot of the stress of what happened had to have an effect on her life. Susan Smith obviously had a huge effect on her life, and Mark's life was effectively ruined as well. One interaction between Kathy and Mark could have changed everything, you know, allowed him to be honest with her, say, yeah, you know what, we did have an affair. She obviously wasn't going to leave him. She didn't leave him anyway after he killed her. Yeah, we did have an affair. I am glad to be away from it. It was a mistake. Let's move on. Then there is no need to kill Susan Smith when she's threatening him when he comes back to Pikeville, threatening him, to, threatening to ruin his marriage, threatening to out him for their affair. So what? I've already told my wife. She already understands. That alone would have solved it. I'm ranting now. I'm ranting because it's just, it doesn't make sense to me. It just hits me wrong in my brain. There were so many opportunities there. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts, everybody? Do you feel the same way I do when you hear that story? Uh, it fires me up. I'm going to be honest. It's firing me up right now. You can contact us on our Gmail account. It's provemewrongcast at gmail.com. That is uh, the Gmail. Drop us a line. Send us a note. Tell us what you think. Send us what you feel. What are your thoughts on it? You can also contact us on Facebook and Instagram. Prove Me Wrong is the name of the program. You can find us on either one of those platforms. Again, you can uh, drop a note and let us know what you think. Uh, if there's also, if you have any other stories like that that you think are interesting that you'd like me to to get in contact with the author and, and talk through those true crime stories as well. I'll do that. Just just let me know what they are. I enjoy talking true crime, even though it frustrates me, because all I see are the what ifs. I see the opportunities that presented themselves that could have changed everything. If you're looking for opportunity to listen to the podcast, we are on all major podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Anchor, TuneIn Radio, any podcast app where you find your podcasts, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Like and subscribe to the show, and you'll be notified when a brand new episode is released. We typically release episodes every week, once a week. We release a podcast version and a video version. If you're watching on the YouTube and Rumble versions right now, here I am. You can see me now. Once again, we are on YouTube and Rumble.com. Both of those are video platforms. You can like and subscribe to the Prove Me Wrong page on YouTube or Rumble, and you will be notified when a brand new episode is released, and then you can actually physically see the conversation that I've had with Joe. Joe was on with me here. We had a Zoom meeting update on here, and um, and we talked it out. Before we go tonight, I want to say that uh, the Prove Me Wrong podcast is brought to you by Zendo Zone Citronella Burners from J.T. Eaton. I have one right here. I like to bring him up. He's here. He listens to the show. This is uh, Surf and Stan. They're shaped like fearless bug-repellent tiki gods, as you can see. There's the tiki god. 
So let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zone Citronella Burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones. They're perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. So they are available at Amazon.com and at select Ace Hardware stores. If you go to your local hardware store, your Ace Hardware store, and you do not see Zendo Zones, you can also drop us a line on the Prove Me Wrong cast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page and let us know the address of that Ace Hardware store and we'll try to get them uh, inserted there. You all should be able to have a Zendo Zone and make your backyards fun again. So for Joe Sharkey and his book Above Suspicion, this is Pete Lieb with the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Once again, we will talk to you again later. Later.